Hello and welcome to the podcast. The latest Rajar audience figures are out and how well are the BBC networks holding up? Well, Radio 4's Today programme has lost 800,000 listeners in the past year. Radio 4 itself is down 11.4% on the year, that's in reach. But the BBC says on-demand listening to the station has risen by 15.1%. Radio 2 maintained 14.5 million weekly listeners, despite a push to attract younger audiences, which has alienated some long-standing fans. But, of course, these figures relate to the period before Ken Bruce left the station. Now, if you find all this confusing which I do, I strongly recommend you go to Matt Deegan's newsletter, Matt on Audio, and subscribe. It's free and authoritative. And besides, he's a really lovely guy. Elsewhere, BBC Local Radio Network in England is down 7% overall, and the fallout over the changes to local radio continues, with BBC Local Radio journalists in England rejecting the BBC's revised Digital First plans. They voted for a 48-hour strike on Wednesday, the 7th of June, and Thursday, the 8th of June. And with no appointment of a BBC chair likely for the next six months or so, there are suggestions in the press that Dame Ellen Kloss-Stevens, a non-executive director, will take over as acting chair when Richard Sharp stands down at the end of June. Now, this week on the podcast, we had hoped to be bringing you an interview with the former director-general of the BBC, Tony Hall, Lord Hall of Birkenhead. But unfortunately, he's had to postpone the interview to next week. Not long to wait, fingers crossed. In the meantime, I'm delighted to be joined by the author of a new book called Why Is This Lying Bastard Lying to Me? A quote which Jeremy Paxman used lovingly on many occasions. The book's author is Rob Burley, who has worked with almost everybody in the political world. Before he left the BBC in 2021, he had been deputy editor of Newsnight, where he worked with Jeremy Paxman, Evan Davis and Emily Maitlis, and he'd then become editor of the BBC's live political shows, overseeing the Andrew Marr Show, Politics Live and the Westminster Hour, and even impressing Andrew Neil. No mean feat. Rob Burley, welcome to the podcast. And as I said, your book's called Why Is This Lying Bastard Lying to Me? a quote which uh, Jeremy Paxman obviously enjoyed using, although it wasn't his. It belonged to Louis Heron, who was deputy editor at The Times. But why did you choose it for your book's title? It's a great title, Roger, isn't it? I mean, you know, to, 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 to some extent, you've got to choose a title that will grab people. Um, but also, I suppose it does encapsulate an attitude that a lot of people have towards uh, the political interviews they see. They feel people aren't being straightforward with them. Um, and it also speaks to a relationship, if you know the quote's origins in terms of Jeremy Paxman and Louis Herrell, you know, the relationship between the interviewer and the interviewee. So I thought it sort of, it works on a number of levels. The only slight problem is when, it, when I'm on t TV talking about it, they have to bleep the word out. Oh, well, um, actually, you don't call anybody, as far as I can see in the book, a bastard. But you do call a remarkable number of people liars at a particular moment. I mean, Paddy Mordaunt, Boris Johnson, I could go on. You, you don't pull any punches there where you think they've lied. You say so. Even as mild a person as we thought as Jeremy Hunt, you make very clear, lied on a particular moment. You're extraordinarily frank about that. Well, what I do is actually, you know, I don't just assert it. What I do is, I, and I'm not sure every time I actually use the word, but what I do is lay out the evidence. So if Jeremy Hunt says, I was never worried about the economic impact of Brexit, then that's easily uh, disproved by just a reference to the things he said during the a referendum campaign in which he specifically said that the economic impact would be significant. So that was easy enough. Same with the, the Penny Morden example. 
she went on TV and said that um, we, the UK, when it was in the EU, had no veto over, uh, you know, putative membership of the EU by Turkey, when it definitely did. So those things are kind of demonstrable. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think I bandy the word around, but I think you know, it's yeah. it's about pointing out the examples when people say things that are contradicted by the evidence. How have politicians treated you or reacted if they've read your book? Do you think they look at you in a slightly different way? It's a bit early to say, really. I haven't actually encountered any of them since then, really, to be perfectly honest with you. So it's, it's, it's hard, hard to know the answer to that question. I'm mean, like I say, I don't think it's not, it's not a sort of litany of accusation uh, or kind of banding around emotive words. It's just it, at times in there talking about this relationship between interviewers and interviewees and talking about the perception of uh, evasion or untruth. That I point to some examples that seem quite clear cut. So I wouldn't want people to come over the idea it's just a sort of barrage of kind of uh, you know abuse. It's not that at all. No, but perhaps there are politicians and uh, journalists are often uh, you know are trying to do two different things. I mean, do you have any sense of sympathy for politicians? I mean, they work all day, a lot of them very very hard, long hours on difficult issues, some which they can talk about, some which they can't at the time. Then they come along to the studio and they meet people who've been preparing all day to get a killer quote out of them. Do you have any sympathy for the politicians? Yeah, no, and actually I do, you know, I do say you can't, you shouldn't approach interviews in, in, that, in that manner. That's why I talk about an approach I try to use, which is called, you know, what is, what is the truth, we used to call it, trying to find a kind of even-handed, fair approach to a particular interview so that we could, uh, you know, have a meaningful conversation. I mean, the problem is that things, the relationship has kind of broken down, really. So you, you say there's that, that um, tendency of interviewers to want to make a kind of ha have an impact in the interview. Well, there's so much competition yeah. out there, Rob, that everybody, you know, the far more political programmes, far more news programmes, everybody wants to get a quote that they can use. Yeah. And sometimes you think, you know, once they're more interested in getting the quote than helping the audience to understand a complex issue. I, I agree, but, and I think that's... The, why is that happening? Partly, if you're facing a seven-minute interview maybe that's generous you might even get less than that so there's maybe lots of outlets but that's the duration they're getting then it's really andrew neil points out in the book one of the sort of an unfortunate legacy in a way of him and jeremy paxman is that interview interviewers sometimes want to be like jeremy paxman or andrew neil in a in an interview in order to kind of make their own claim for to fame and, and sometimes that will be going viral on social media or whatever and that's distorting what the process is supposed to be about that's why what i argue for is depth and length and you know duration so that's where and, and that's actually good. That should be good for the interviewee as well, because it offers an opportunity to really discuss things seriously and get away from that kind of shock and awe approach. Can we go back a little way, a rather long way, actually, because I want to talk to you when I was a young political producer um, in the 1970s, where I was, when I look back, it looks a bit like a golden period. I mean, the 1960s, we can remember at the beginning of the 60s, there's awfully deferential interviews. Uh, Prime Minister, you've been somewhere very interesting. Would you like to tell us about it? Yes. And then Robin Day came in and we got, the, and I would, had the good fortune to work with him uh, and, and admire him, because regardless of the length of the interview, be it half an hour, 50 minutes or 10, he was scrupulous about preparing for it but then when mrs thatcher uh, was about to uh, come to power or to become the leader of the conservative party i remember i was organizing a panorama program and i got all of the leaders i think there were five or six who were bidding for the leadership rather and uh, mrs thatcher came on the phone uh, to me on the morning of the interview and pulled out or tried to persuade me i misled her ah. and pulled out and then she was in tears 
I know the Copyright Act, Mr Bolton. Now, what I then learned subsequently was that Gordon Rees, who was then in charge of her, decided she was so far ahead that uh, don't take any risks. So as far back mm. as 1975 or six, that, you know, pulling out at the last minute was happening. And then with Gordon Rees... Um, you had all of the, uh, I'm not interested in what you're going to interview, what's the background look like? I want flowers on the desk. Yeah. We've got to make her uh -huh. hair different. We've got to get reduce her voice and so on. So it's a long way mm. back when those at least involved in producing the politician were more concerned with the medium than the message. Absolutely. And in fact, in the book I talk about, it's, it's, very, it's very quick. It's very, you know, after Robin Day has established... I think in 1958 with Harold Macmillan that you don't necessarily have to just offer these um, interviews that you you talk about there at the airport when it's all very very sort of deferential. Uh, quite quickly, you know, you get the next generation of politicians of Harold Wilson and Edward Heath embracing the idea of being on television, yet quite quickly trying to come up with ways of controlling that experience um, and and thinking about. I mean, there's a quote, a quote from Edward Heath I use in the book, which is very much a description of the on message approach of Peter Mandelson, but 30 years previously. So the dance has already begun at that point. You know, the, the interview with um, the interview with, with Macmillan is the point when we see an interview where there there are no comms people kind of in the way of the, in the way of that. But that doesn't last very long. Um, it's also very interesting what you say there about the about her pulling out because in a way, uh, you know, in a sense, she's a kind of she, she's she's a good example in the book of somebody who uh, makes herself available most of the time and does do interviews at length. Um, yeah, that's and, the paradox, isn't it? That's because yeah. what's in power. She was such a conviction politician. I also think there was nothing else in her life, uh, actually, virtually except politics, that she wanted to argue with you. I mean, I remember mm. doing an interview with her. I know a, a presenter doing an interview with her and going. I think it was this week program. And I was doing that, going to hospitality afterwards. Uh, yeah, pour the whiskey out for her. Uh, Bernard Ingham wanted to get her. No, she wanted to argue uh, about a different subject altogether. And she sat with two for two hours with us. Now, we had nothing particularly to say, but she'd suddenly got fascinated in this issue, uh, which is about satellite television has happened, and she wouldn't let go. So you had this paradox of uh, a politician who was on the one hand, you know, hair changed, lower voice, produced in every other way, mm -hmm. but a conviction politician who actually, in the end, just wanted to argue and talk. And it was an interesting yeah. sort of contrast. Oh, and just to, and just, to, just, to, just cast ahead for a second, if you contrast that with the approach that Liz Truss took, and Liz Truss was sort of making an argument about a kind of radical change. Okay, she, she had she had a, a, an agenda that was that was radical, but she didn't really choose to go out and do what Margaret Thatcher did, who, who ostensibly is a heroine of hers, which was go out and make those arguments in, 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 in the sort of public square of television. In fact, she tried to avoid as much scrutiny as possible, which didn't serve her well because it didn't prepare the country for the what she had in mind. Whereas Mrs Thatcher, if you go back to those interviews with Brian Walden uh, in the 1970s, you know, the, 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 they're, they're remarkable because they sort of in real time sketching out the extent to which she will go down the road of explaining her philosophy so that initially tentative the first interview is in 77 in september his very first show they talk about um you know, trade union power but it's all slightly kind of couched by the time she appears in 79 she's much more bold and you know, then we go into the period when she's in power so it, an environment was created where that conversation about ideas could be uh, could be had which is a very valuable thing yeah you're very frank about Lintras. you say in the book page 381, uh, her reaction to a question. It was pitiful. Truss was the worst sort of politician. She stuck to her pre-prepared lines and was entirely inflexible. Fundamentally, she was unable to rise to the occasion. 
People were worried and needed reassurance and leadership. Instead, they got dead-eyed deflection. Um, yeah, well, uh, something else has happened there. I mean, I suppose Mrs Thatcher was trying to win an argument, change the course of British politics in a particular direction. <laughs> but also, the broadcast has a lot more power. In 1977, when she was in opposition, but then when she was in power, 1979 onwards initially, only three television stations. BBC One, ITV, Channel 4. There was an expectation that she had to appear on one of those three and at some length. So to a degree, the broadcasters had some power. As she could choose, you know, when she would appear. We had, a, you know, always had invitations in. She would effectively decide when she wanted to appear. You never turn a prime minister down, do you? But, but we had a degree of power there. Now there are so many outlets, and including some that aren't totally committed, shall we say, to thorough, unbiased investigation, that the power has flowed back into the hands of politicians and also through social media they think they can govern in headlines don't they mm-hmm. yeah no, no that's all true i mean i suppose it's interesting though up until 2019 in the elections in election campaigns at least there was a kind of norm that was accepted although no one could compel this to continue which was that they did submit themselves to long-form interviews um and that norm was broken by Boris Johnson in 2019. Now, we'll see now, because in a way, Rishi Sunak's offer, in a sense, is a return to some norms that were perhaps uh, thrown overboard by the previous prime minister, but one. Um, uh, and so, you know, we'll see whether that's honoured. But yes, it's true. You can't compel and it's becoming harder. But I, I suppose it's whether the politicians... And look, I might, this may be a forlorn hope, this book, as I attempt to make the argument that we need to return to scrutiny. But, you know, what, you, what, what I, ho- I hope people will do is think about this and, 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 and demand, if in any way they can, that politicians do submit themselves to it because it's the best way of us holding to account and knowing whether they've got the right stuff to actually leave the country. Well, I, I, I agree with you. But, I, you know, what seems to happen now, election after election, is uh, that if, if the person who's in the lead... Uh, particularly if it's uh, the incumbent, um, uh, prevaricates. The leader of the opposition who is desperate to get as much publicity as possible says yes to the interview. Um, and in the end, if it's Boris Johnson, of course, they don't appear. And they certainly don't appear if Andrew Neely is anywhere, <laughs> anywhere around. Well, but that's, that, was, but that, that, that wasn't the case, though. I mean, they were appearing, yes. with, including with Andrew yeah. Neely. Even when Theresa May was ahead, in, she thought, in 2017, she appeared. So it's only one person who's actually in terms of an election campaign, who's done this. I mean, Liz Truss kind of followed on from that idea in her leadership election, but neither of those things went so well. So, I mean, you know, it it remains to be seen what what Rishi Sunak or Keir Starmer's attitude to that will be. I I think it would be... I'm I'm, I'm actually going to be, you know, optimistic that 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 they will want to reassert those norms but there was a loss of confidence wasn't there in among broadcasters as well i mean you talk for example uh, refer to an article written by ian katz now i think director of programs at channel four was at the guardian then he wrote this article for financial times i think when he he talked essentially about the 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 death of the political interview and yeah. this was quite i'm sorry i haven't got the date with me but we must be talking what 15 years 10 years 10 years ago anyway and he seemed to despair on that and then he made an effort, uh, or Newsnight made an effort, with somebody you don't uh, really seem to think a lot of, Evan Davis, to explore issues. Yeah. And lasted for a short time. Now, if you believe 
that it's important that we explore issues in depth. And you've listened to Evan Davis on the PM programme. Mm, yeah. Don't you think he's doing exactly that? So why didn't you think of much of him when he was trying to do it on Newsnight? Well, to be absolutely clear, I don't say that I don't think much of him. I say I talk about, there's two things I talk about. One is the extent to which he was interested, and it may not have been the case with anybody else, um, in my input. I mean, the book is designed to be, to some extent, a memoir and a sort of, you know, behind the scenes, some of the frustrations so I'm not saying anything. I'm not. I'm not saying anything bad about him as a, as a person. I'm saying that he, for whatever reason, didn't seem particularly interested in my input. Maybe that was my fault, but he, he wasn't interested in it. Um, Do you, are you sure about, that you sure that's not a difference of style? That you are still, you were still more interested in the killer quote than you admit. More in the headline, he was more interested in the understanding of the issue, and that actually both are valid. No, no, totally. But I, I think they're both are valid. But I'm, I, I, what I'm saying is that. It felt what ha- what happened. At, look, first of all, I think he's brilliant on PM, and that seems to me an absolutely appropriate place for him to to do those sorts of interviews. I think I didn't stay very long after he arrived because you know it was partly because it was you know frustration. But I suppose what I felt was what he needed to do was yes, uh, be thoughtful, be open, try and have a proper constructive conversation. But if you if you actually sort of get rid of all the drama and all the kind of uh, jeopardy altogether of a newsnight interview, then you, you don't really have a happy outcome. Uh, so that was where I was on it. But it didn't really have very long to develop. No. Um, you're just going briefly back, though, to the question of whether politicians tell the truth. Um, I'd noted that, you know, most of us would have regarded Mrs May as, what can I say, a very decent, honourable person who had uh, did not have a large number of the necessary political skills. And as you make clear, no small talk at all. Yeah. So that when you go up in the lift before an interview with her, when you greet her, it's, it's total silence. But you say this page 302. Uh, Still, however much sympathy one has for May, it's no exaggeration to say that she had a problem with the truth. Are you just talking about a particular issue or do you think that was uh, marked her premiership? I'm talking about her her style in in, in interviews. Now, that doesn't mean she said things that said things that were untrue. But what she did was she sort of didn't answer questions. So she wasn't interested in giving a truthful answer. She'd often just fall back upon awful soundbite sort of slogans like a, a country that that works for everyone or whatever it was, you know, it was just, it was just this, this, this dialogue that was entirely pointless between the interviewer and interviewee. He didn't want to say anything. And I talked, I talked to her former director of communications about her attitude to interviews, which was that she felt she was someone who in good faith had made decisions. Um, and, uh, she, she sort of was a bit affronted by the idea that anyone would want to question them too much. So that's what I mean. I don't think she was interested in, in, in the process of getting to the truth in, in an interview, um, and that's why she had these, what well, for her in the end was self-defeating things, which are nothing has changed in that election campaign when something had changed, you know. So. The, yeah. Well, the most frustrating person I ever had to deal with uh, was a long time back was Gordon Brown, who, uh, because it was very frustrating because, uh, you know, occasionally when you met him, if it was in a more relaxed and it wasn't often relaxed situation, you knew there was a really interesting, thoughtful uh, well-connected, well-read individual there who would then come on an interview with a pre-prepared series of sound bites that he repeated and he repeated and he repeated almost regardless of the question. Yeah, yeah. Baff- Baffling. Um, but, you know, that's, that's going back, what, 15 years now. But they were, sim- they were similar, I think, in that, Roger, in that respect. I think both of those politics... And, the, and the, it's not to say they weren't people of honour and of, you know, conviction and they thought they were doing the right thing. Uh, necessary at all it's just that they in, in communication terms they'd i mean i mean gordon brown on in a way you know was the king of on message um and you know in the end that bequeathed the kind of style of speaking to the future labor potential leadership 
candidates of not being able to speak clearly at all, which opened the way to Jeremy Corbyn, who actually did speak clearly. Can we move on then to the Brexit campaign? And um, something which really nags a bit at me about, about what we... I don't think we did as journalists, which was this. We dwelt on the first part of the question with Brexit, which is, do you want to leave the European Union? And inevitably in that, you looked at the things that are wrong and whatever. But the second part of the question, which wasn't on the whole asked, it seems to me, was this. What's the other destination? Mm-hmm. Yeah, part one, you want to leave. But where are you gonna li- what are you going to leave for? Yeah. Now, it's come pretty clear now that even Brexiteers can't agree amongst themselves about the destination. Yeah. And uh, do you look back on that and think that we as a whole did not serve the public that well? I think that's a, I think that's a very good point. I think that wasn't enough. There wasn't enough of that in the conversation. There was... You know, we allow. I mean, you know, I, I have rewatched all the Mar shows I worked on. Then it was quite a painful experience, but I've gone through them all back from that the whole campaign. Oh, the Andrew, the Andrew Mar shows, the yeah. Andrew Mar show. Sorry, which I was editing at the time, and I think we did we did a very good job. Actually, I was relieved to watch it back and feel that we did question. But you know, it was in the end that future was just posited as being either a continuation of the status quo if we stayed in, or the sunlit uplands of something wonderful that was asserted by Leave, and it was quite hard to kind of actually interrogate that, and it. And it, it I think the other thing, more generally, is I think that in a way we felt like we let the campaign itself by the by the two sides dictate things too much, and maybe we should have, as it were, as journalists, taken a grip of it outside of what the campaigns were saying. But isn't that the danger the BBC always does, uh, well, my experience, is that where things get very heated, at the campaign it withdraws a bit, yeah. and it says, we're going to be very even-handed, we'll tell you what both the politicians say, some, both parties say, or the three parties, whatever it is, but we will... Stop at that point. We will, you know, the old argument was two people are having an argument in a studio. One says it's light outside. The other says it's dark. The presenter should turn around and have a look and then tell the audience which one yeah. it is. And then when you get to something like Brexit, something which is arguable, like the BBC said, uh, mm, be very careful. We've got to survive. So, in other words, it's putting the BBC survival before reporting, in a way. Is that fair? Well, look, I mean, I, you know, my, my, my involvement was a specific thing. I do make a very big distinction in the book, as you have seen, between programmes and news. And I don't, I don't really want to, I don't really want to make a comment on the way the news was conducted by the people that did it. It was very, you know, challenging for those, for those, for those reasons. Except you'd have thought in the discussion programmes and it would, would be the place where you would have examined these issues. And you say you did, but, but sufficiently? Well, I think we examined the issues, but, but you know, what, where I think you're right is we didn't get into properly, or maybe it's very hard to, a discussion about the world as it will be in the future if you if you take a particular choice. I think in terms of actually being interrogating the the um, the claims that were made, then I think we did. But I think yeah, look, we were swept up in the campaign too. I think you know it it, it doesn't come around very often, and you've got to get it right that time. And you know not everything was perfect, but I, I think overall I was happy with it looking back. Just briefly on Brexit, there you have this extraordinary, well to me extraordinary quote from Sir Robbie Gibb. He was just playing Robbie Gibb. You say at the time he was my boss at the BBC during the Brexit campaign. He later left the BBC to work as Theresa May's director of communication in Downing Street before joining the BBC board where he sits today. Now, looking back on the claims and counterclaims of Leave and Remain, he does not accept that Leave were lying. Now, this is a quote directly to you from Robbie Gibb. It's just not true that politicians lie all the time. 350 million was not a lie at all. It's just campaigning. Well, it's irrelevant whether it's campaigning or not. It's a lie or it isn't a lie. Do you agree? Uh, I'm recording Robbie's quote to me. You can draw your own conclusions what you think of it. I, don't, I, don't, I, I'm, I was just trying to give a bit of illumination into, into as, how he saw it as a senior person um, at the time he was my boss. So, yeah, um, you know, it, 
I'm not going to, I'm not going to adjudicate on that with him, but I'm, I'm just, I'm, I thought that was quite freely given to me. So, you know. Uh, and um, yes, very interesting it was. But um, this issue comes up a bit again because you say, um, page 247, the day after the referendum in 2016, I remember talking to my boss at the BBC Time, Robbie Gibb, who ran the political programmes department. I told him that, in my view, we needed to interrogate the veracity of the vote leave claims that had won them the referendum. Claims like the £350 million a week for the NHS on the side of the bus. Robbie was horrified. All that was done, he told me. It was now time to move on. Robbie thought that anything that looked back at the referendum would look to voters like an attempt to rerun it. It risked giving the impression the BBC couldn't accept the outcome and wanted to discredit the result. He seems there to be more concerned with, if you take his word, the impression of how the BBC is regarded than actually doing the journalistic job that was needed. I mean, were you shocked by that statement? The re- yeah, the reason it's in the book is that, you know, that was one I... I mean, I worked with Robbie closely and got on very well with him, and um, I didn't. I don't have a problem with, you know, my time working with Robbie. That was one... Ex- experience which i did which did stick out for me because i just fundamentally disagreed that you could just move on from a referendum campaign as if what was said in it didn't matter it needed to be tested because how can we how can we move forward and judge whether this is the you know what the right thing to do is how we handle this if we don't actually you know question those claims uh, which you know dominic cummings himself is on the record as saying that claim was instrumental in the actual success of the campaign so i i, I didn't agree with him on that particular issue i think his view was that you know it was over the, the next question was the more important one which is what which is what you referred to earlier which is what happens next rather than looking back on a campaign that's gone so i guess it's an, it's, it's a matter of opinion it's, it's like i say i didn't have a problem at all with working with robbie down the years that one was one where we disagreed this whole question of of kowtowing you know many on the left and it used to be people on the right of course uh, when Labour in power would uh, and Blair was there and Alistair Campbell was rampaging uh, was suggesting that the BBC is too willing to listen to uh, Downing Street in other words I mean going back again I never had to cope with the sort of pressure you did but we did have a person in the BBC called Margaret Delaglis, whose basic job, and then below her heads of current affairs, was to absorb the pressure, let the editors get on with the job. And you, it seems to me, in, in your generation, is getting this actually in the neck directly from... And that, in a, in a sense, with the BBC, uh, means that there's a danger that, that uh, the BBC is particularly... Well, it's opening up its staff to political pressure more than in the past... I think you can control that to some extent. So when I was there, I was the editor of political programmes and I, my, I would try and limit my interaction with the political class. I wouldn't necessarily speak to them very often. I wouldn't uh, socialise with them. I could sort of hold, hold them at arm's length to an extent because I was making programmes, you know, weekly shows or kind of... Uh, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, what's, in the today, what's on the Today programme now and or how is that, what words are we using in the output? But we have seen some suggestions in some, in some media coverage that there has been pressure exerted particularly to those involved in the the news side of Westminster, that they get those kind of calls all the time. Uh, and, that you know, there is some evidence which is anecdotal and I don't think remotely sort of um, uh, kind of comprehensive about about times when they may have made, when they may have, when they may have been pressurised. Um, you know, there may be many, many times where they weren't pressurised, but it, so they certainly came under a lot of pressure. I think, uh, you know, that happened quite a lot. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's unfortunate. And what I say is, you know, if you take out lots of people who can help to absorb that pressure and pile it onto one person which is the way they operate now because of cuts really um you know that's even more dangerous so i think they just have to be aware of that 
Well, it is dangerous because, I mean, I, in many ways, I'm a fan of Tim Davey. I greatly admire him. But he can't do everything. I mean, you've got one person in charge of content now on BBC, Charlotte Moore. She's very capable, but she's director of everything, but she except news. You've got a person doing that. But essentially, Tim Davey seems to be trying to run everything. He can't. And then you get mm. silly mistakes, in my view, and I think your view too. When you lose somebody like Andrew Neil yeah. from the BBC. A, is, in my view anyway, probably the best political interviewer there is. I mean, I know you would make a case also for Emily Maitlis, but, yeah. Anyway, but and and Beth Rigby is, is, is in cracking form on Sky. But I think the, 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 the problem is that um, if the DG is trying to do everything and there are 24 hours in the day, he doesn't do some things, and things like telling Andrew Neil, don't worry, there may be changes, we're going to give you your show, doesn't happen. But on the other hand, you read your account of that and you say, Andrew Neil, in the, all the time he was doing um, his programme this week, uh, over 10, 14 years, no controller of the channel ever talked to him. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's scandalously incompetent, isn't it? Arguably, you've got with you one of the few right-wingers who can... Uh, who is a really excellent presenter, who is not right-wing remotely when he's interviewing. He's probably the best in the business. You don't, he's on your channel. You don't talk to him for 14 years, and the DG doesn't intervene to make sure he's given somewhere when the DG says obsessed with... Not obsessed, but f- thinks impartiality is vital. I mean, that has to be described as incompetent, doesn't it? Well, look, I think it's, to say the least, unfortunate. I think, I think, he, I think Andrew was taken for granted. I think Andrew would would have would have stayed at the BBC if they if they'd made the effort properly because I think he he loved the BBC. I think you can't overstate his value to the BBC because as you say what he brought was he brought fair interviewing but he he was he was a one man argument against those that said the BBC is just full of a certain worldview um and he he actually you know embodied that that kind of impartiality in a way. Um look, I I absolutely recognize how difficult the job of the DG is and it's you know it's in a way you know you'd hope someone else was closely involved with the management of a, of a presenter like Andrew Neil. Um, unfortunately, they let him slip through their fingers, and I think that's unfortunate for everybody, and I'm sure that Tim Davey wished that hadn't happened. Um, you know, what the BBC should do now is, is, re- is recommit to long-form political interviewing. Uh, may, you know, maybe not Andrew Neil, but there are many other talented people, Nick Robinson, Michelle Hussein, there are, there are many others that, that could be selected and used. So, you know that's what they should do. But of course, some people would some some would say actually they they're already doing it in podcasts. But the truth is, when you actually look at the when you actually look at the, the audience figure for podcasts as opposed to broadcast, still, yeah. far more people listen and watch broadcast, don't they? Of course, but and, and also, I mean, this this has come up a few times when I've been talking about the need to go to long form political interviews on TV again. And the thing is about apart from the numbers, you know, the reality is that podcasts are a different genre. They're a more gentle, more open genre. And that's very valuable. And I love the fact that they bring depth to the media landscape, but they don't really offer the challenge that is a, a key part of the concept of, of, the, of the long form political interview. So I don't really think they're a substitute. They're, they complement it rather than they replace it. Rob Bell, it's been a delight to talk to you. Um, I, 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 I detect that, you know, with all the criticism in your book, uh, alongside it, it's in the book as well, but it is there now, you still have enthusiasm for what you're doing, don't you? You still want to continue doing it. You still get excited by it. I love it. I'm passionate about it. And, I, and, I, and look, I, I, the other thing I'd like to just emphasize, because this is Watch, is that, you know, I had 13 years of the BBC, which is an absolute privilege, and I think the BBC is one of the most you know important institutions in this country if i'm sometimes you know have been a bit critical in the book that's because you know i think there needs to be some things need to be said but 
uh, I just hope that you know government let, let leaves them alone or, or gives them the funding they need and they can move forward into the future. Um, I'm sure they can and we'll be having Beeb Watch for the next, uh, I don't know, 10, 20 years, Roger? <laughs> well, I hope so. And <laughs> by the way, your book, Why Is This Lying Bastard Lying to Me? It says on the front, a delicious read, very, Emily Maitlis, very funny, Steve Coogan. I normally take those with a pinch of salt, but it's true, it is. Thank you very much. Thank you, Roger. Thanks so much. Thank you. And that's it for this week. Next week, we will be talking to the former Director General of the BBC, Tony Hall. And thanks very much for those of you who have sent in some very thoughtful questions. I can't wait to use them. And as journalism comes under increasing pressure, please do support our journalism if you're enjoying this podcast. It costs less than £2 per month, and that also gives you access to a weekly newsletter. We hope, we think, it's money well spent. And you can do this easily using the link on our website and in the description of this programme on your podcast platform, where you will also find details of how to contact us on Twitter, Mastodon and by email. This podcast was presented by me, Roger Bolton, and it was produced by Kate Dixon. The sound was by Clifton Bank Studios, and special thanks to Quingenti. It was a good egg production. Until next time, goodbye.